This podcast is for investment professionals only. Hello and welcome to the June edition of Rich Pickings, Fidelity's Asset Allocation Podcast. I'm Richard Edgar, Editor-in-Chief, and I'm at my favoured post-podcast recording location, the contemplative cafe at the Church of St Mary Aldermary, just down the road from the Fidelity offices in the City of London. But what's to contemplate this month? Well, sentiment souring on Europe, mixed messaging from the world's central banks, and Fidelity's own forward-looking indicator suggesting there's not much to look forward to. Now, just before we get going, a quick plug for another podcast, For Investment Professionals Only. Yes, that's what it's called. Each month in For Investment Professionals Only, we tackle a big question facing investors, going in-depth with the portfolio managers, economists and analysts specialising in those issues. We've covered end-of-cycle behaviour, downside protection, the value of ESG, and the latest episode asks whether we've seen the peak of passive investing. It's available right now. Just search for for investment professionals only in your podcast app of choice. Now though, on with the show. Joining me in the studio this week are three of the multi-asset team. Charlotte Harrington, a markets analyst who, my question this week, bought what with her first paycheck? Well, it wasn't actually my first paycheck, but it was a very memorable purchase and it was quite an early job. Um, And I bought my horse for £1.15 because I was going to train him and sell him on. So it was more work, if you like. Absolutely. Was this an investment that paid off? Well, I never quite sold him, so it didn't quite go to plan. (laughs) Jolly good. Um, Portfolio manager Eugene Philodethis is here, who for his first salary... Well, it was a series of summer jobs back in uh, 1982, which I used uh, and saved up to buy uh, Panini stickers for my World Cup sticker book. Uh, uh, they're still going strong. Did they you get them all? Strong. I got all but one, a Dutch player whose name I can't remember now. But uh, <laughs> um, well, if he's got... listening, I yeah. hope he sends the sticker in. <laughs> Thank you very much. And James Bateman, CIO of Multi-Asset. James, do you remember what you bought with your very first paycheck? Um, I, I, I think I do, Richard. And the answer was a, a rather comfortable Bauhaus-style um, black leather sofa. And um, is it still with us? It's still in the family and still being used as a very comfortable place to sit. Yes. Jolly good. Well, thank you all for being here. James, as always, we're going to start with you and uh, your rundown of the allocation, how any of it's changed uh, since last time, which, of course, was the historic moment, as you described it, uh, when you went from overweight to neutral equities for the first time since 2009. What about this month? So um, that, that broad positioning hasn't changed. We're still neutral equities and we expect to run that position throughout the summer. So I think, you know, September time is going to be where we have some, some more difficult um, and interesting conversations. Um, what has changed on the regional equities, we've we've moved um, Europe from an overweight to a neutral. Um, so the only regional position we have on now is a overweight to Japan um, and an underweight to the UK. Why is that? So really, I suppose what, what, what we concluded was the only two high conviction positions we had was, were that overweight and underweight. Europe was a lower conviction position. And we felt that in a period where we've gone neutral equities, we're a bit less certain about the outlook generally and where clearly geopolitical risks are, have risen in, in Europe, um, taking that position off made sense. You know, concerns around Italy, concerns around Spain. I was actually in Germany yesterday having quite an in-depth conversation with them about the German political situation and you know the, the, how, how strong Merkel's government really is and, and wh- where it's going to be towards year end. You start questioning all those things. Being overweight, Europe feels, at least in the short term, to be wrong. When we think about the, the positions we are keeping on, 
Um, the, the, the underweight to the UK, as we've flagged many times, is, is the impact of Brexit. That clearly has a, a substantial uh, risk premium attached to it that means that you can't imagine um, stocks, particularly domestic-focused stocks, materially re-rating over the, the, the short to medium term. Okay, well, Eugene, um, a little later than some here, uh, you also went uh, neutral on equities from uh, from overweight. Um, why this month? So I kept my overweight uh, for uh, yes a month longer than the rest of the team, and I think what uh, I found was that I was starting to feel more uncomfortable with the with the overweight position, as the data that we were seeing coming through was confirming more of a slowdown uh, across. Uh, a broader spectrum of uh, of regions, so not just Europe, but maybe also um, China. You know, some some data marginally showing some weakness there. So, I felt that the overweight for an extra month hadn't really hurt either way, but it just made sense to to de-risk the portfolios a bit more. Because the environment's sort of cooling, the economic well, environment is cooling around. Yeah, it's not showing any signs of uh, stabilization or, or bottoming out, and it could become a more sort of long-term or longer-lasting slowdown. Maybe not you know, a very deep slowdown, but just a, a longer term slowdown, which could have a, a broader impact on markets. So we've had the political environment from James, the economic environment um, uh, from you, Eugene. Charlotte, um, let, let's take one in particular, the, um, the Fidelity's leading indicator, the FLY, as it's known, a composite of economic data. Um, that's shown yet another month of, um, of poor readings. Can you tell us a little bit more? Yes, no, that's right. So last month, the fly turned quite aggressively negative on, on risk assets. And that uh, that has stayed the same throughout this month. And what we're really seeing is just a continuation of this slower data, uh, particularly coming out of Europe, but also um, things like Korean es- exports, which tend to be a very good leading indicator for, um, or the survey tends to be a good leading indicator for, for the kind of trade picture. And obviously the fly feeds into our, our multi-asset model uh, and and there too we're seeing other pressures in terms of still quite high inflationary pressures which tends to be quite difficult at least on, from a fundamental perspective for, for risk assets. Uh, one person said in um, the asset allocation group it's a cold summer but far from a nuclear winter so there's a bit of um, variation in this. I think there is. I think some people think this is a uh, we've seen the peak growth, growth slowed a bit, but actually from here it could stabilise. Uh, other people, including myself, struggle to really see what at this stage is going to turn that around and, 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 and kind of put a floor under, uh, under it. OK, well, another portfolio manager, Matt Quave, took this month's readings of the fly as quite a signal. A little bit earlier today in Fidelis's refectory, as I'm rather grandly calling it, um, I caught up with him to hear more about his concerns around Fidelis's leading indicator. It's essentially telling you the same story and it reinforces it because you've got the second month afterwards. Um, what has changed is that equity markets seem to have rallied, but they've rallied even though credit markets have deteriorated. Um, and whilst levels aren't necessarily materially different in terms of credit spreads, that the health of the market has deteriorated. So, um, well, it's th- this disconnect between the fundamentals and why on earth are the equity markets uh, carrying on, um, and, and credit markets. That's that's often they're often the canary in the coal mine. Yes, aren't they? exactly. And in my experiences, uh, generally, if credit and equities go in opposite directions, I would say three out of four times you're better off going with the credit market than the equity market. Thinking about the next couple of months, what would be a sensible way to start positioning, given all of the information that you're, you're taking in? Yeah, so I, I think if you're able to move um, 
very tactically. Taking some money off the table in equities and taking some risk back um, makes a lot of sense. If you are positioning for you know, 12 months plus, um, then I think a neutral position still makes sense. So you know, if you if you can't move around too quickly, then you know this isn't panic stations. But uh, there is seemingly disconnects in the market that I want to see sort themselves out um, to take more risk and therefore I think I can generate some alpha in the short run by taking my my clients portfolios underweight but then look to reinvest and I think when I look out 12 months even though I talk about these disconnects these things don't tend to last that long so it's really a case of range trading for me over the next 12 months rather than I'm starting to prepare for, for, for a recession. Eugene Whitmer, you're the fixed income expert. What do you make of Matt's uh, red flags? Well, Matt mentioned credit markets, and I think we have seen weakness in uh, some areas, especially in emerging markets, uh, some sovereign markets like Argentina, like Turkey, where uh, I think there's been a reaction to tighter dollar liquidity, and it you know it hasn't taken a lot for uh, markets to react to uh, you know. It, the Federal Reserve raising interest rates and potential for uh, you know uh, dollar liquidity conditions adjusting around the world. Uh, we've also seen spreads widen in European high yield. We've also seen spreads widen in Asia high yield. But I think one of the major markets that hasn't really uh, been affected at all this year or has been very stable and resilient, quite surprisingly, is the U.S. high yield market. Uh, it's been range bound in terms of spreads, moving you know between about three percent to three point six percent over Treasuries. Uh, now it's at the bottom of that range, but it's uh, you know it's been a remarkably resilient market in a year when we've seen significant outflows as well, as as well as quite a high level of issuance. So, the you sound very surprised. I am surprised. So I think there is a disconnect, and I don't know whether you know. Normally we say the credit markets are the ones that lead in terms of uh, concern because that's where the first stresses appear, and equity markets continue rallying. Uh, before they realise something is wrong, uh, that's what you like. We like to say from a fixed income perspective. But the uh, um, my you know my thoughts are what is drive what is the difference between you know what high yield markets are seeing and what equity markets are seeing. James, I think it's a it's it's a fair point Eugene's making, and 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 you know my my sort of leading indicator on equities is always what's going on in fixed income. Um, and my, my big concern is when you see a dry up in liquidity and fixed income, that's a precursor to a bit of a crisis. Um, we are hearing that trading volumes are lower. Therefore, you know, we are more nervous, which is one of the reasons we're, we're neutral equities. So, so I'd completely agree with Eugene's thesis. Well, one other thing about the discussion within the asset allocation group, James, was that um, there was talk about should we be going underweight? But you haven't uh, uh, yet. Why not? No, and I and I think that the reason for that is we are mixed on whether we're in a summer lull, um, or sell in May, sell in May exactly as, as as we said last month, and and I don't like to be a cliche, but we did sell in May, and I, and I and I think that was the right decision. But but there's a very big difference between saying it's a lull and saying we're definitely going to see a down move in, in equities. I think I think our, our our base case is that on a six to twelve month view, equities will either be um, at a similar level or slightly down from here. That sort of downside risk means we don't want to be overweight but equally in a world where equities may well be broadly in line with where they are now you don't want to be underweight because actually that could be better than other other asset classes so that really explains our positioning as as matt said and i think it's a fair point if you're being very tactical in actively managed portfolios i think going slightly underweight at the moment and buying on dips is 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 absolutely the right decision but that isn't our our um, purpose in setting the the multi-asset view 
Okay, on regions, uh, Charlotte, what about Japan and uh, the UK? We sort of touched on it right at the start. Yeah, so I think the the kind of broad view was to to stay overweight Japan. The the sort of key elements here is is that obviously in this decision set we're including the currency. The currency uh, is relatively risk off; it's undervalued, uh, and pairing that with the UK makes quite a nice sort of slightly risk off uh, pair there. And I think increasingly more people are, are sort of buying into the Japan story. I know that Eugene, you're overweight. Yeah, I I think the Japan story is still uh, a positive one. It has valuation support, so it looks relatively attractive compared to other markets. It has got with with the yen. You know, you are picking up that uh, defensive characteristic. If there is volatility, uh, you know, the the yen reduces the volatility of the equity market significantly. And uh, you know, against the UK. Just given the, the political uncertainty around Brexit and now, you know, the, the, our view on the data there, it's just, um, yeah, I think it makes sense to have that position. Is, is there a risk, though, of this becoming received wisdom that the UK is um, just being disrupted for the next um, however long Brexit takes to, to, to unfold and that, in fact, you might be missing a trick, James? I don't think so, Richard. I think, I think what's interesting is the understanding of the impact of Brexit if you're sat in Britain doing the analysis, is pretty strong. If you're sat in another country doing the analysis, you're sat in the US, you're sat in Asia, um, you're not necessarily seeing those minutiae and the, and the detail of what's going on and the risks. And and actually, therefore, I think there's a, there is a risk to those sort of investors. They're viewing Europe as a whole. They're not carving out the UK. And, and actually, that delineation for a long time was quite artificial. It's most definitely not artificial now. And therefore, actually, um, detailed analysis tells you that, that the downside risks, um, which normally the market prices in, after quite a long time, haven't yet been fully priced in. I think as well, if you look at the the fundamentals, you know, we, we talk a lot about the politics because it's sort of very um, high frequency news flow, if you like. But actually, the fundamentals in the UK are really weak. Uh, and uh, you know, I always point to the uh, Rick's house price survey, and um, that's that's in contractionary te- territory. It tells you that GDP is likely falling, and uh, and it's very hard to see the central bank be- being able to become more hawkish. Well, I was this. about to come to uh, central banks because the Bank of England, of course, has um, paused uh, at what had been a pretty well-flagged um, hike on the way. But since um, the asset allocation group met last week, the ECB confirmed it will be unwinding um, QE. Uh, James, uh, a welcome move, normalisation? It's a necessary move, Richard. And I think, you know, when, when, when we look at the central bank actions over the past decade to try and get the world out of the financial crisis. The concern is um, they can't do these things forever. And until you see central banks pull back and become more normal and more normal actors in the marketplace, you are not in a normal market cycle. If you see a downturn in the economy before they've pulled back, that is catastrophic because then there is nothing more they can do. So it is a sign of health. Um, I think the concern I'd have is whether they're doing it because they're getting more and more worried that another slowdown's coming and they haven't pulled back. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I mean, the ECB didn't have to actually announce their taper till July. Uh, they've chosen to do it in June, I think, because there's just this window of opportunity and that they think if they, they wait another month or two, that actually they just, the the backdrop will look so weak that the, the kind of market response to that almost precludes them from being able to do it. It would magnify it. And it would just mm. be perceived as a policy res- uh, mistake, I think. So, so I think it's really interesting that they've announced it now, but at the same time really pushed out those rate hikes uh, it's a very to the back end. taper, if, uh, if yeah. you could say that. <laughs> but yeah, I think um, I mean my uh, I agree with Charlotte, and you know they had to bring it forward. But also, I think giving that forward guidance on uh, you know when they're going to raise interest rates, whether it's you know late summer nineteen or you know third or fourth quarter, 
uh, next year, I think is, you know, potentially opening them up to uh, another uh, trap that they're, they're setting themselves up for. Because if we, you know, we do see inflation start coming back to, to Europe, that could, you know, they would be forced to, um, you know, to, to respond to that. But also, the the impact of negative interest rates is particularly felt on, on banks and their ability to, to generate profits and to increase lending. And, you know, we've seen negative interest rates in a few other uh, countries have not led to the result that was expected. So I think that potentially could be uh, a negative for, for the banking sector uh, profitability. Uh, so a negative view on or, you know, a less positive view for equities in, in European banks, but still on the credit side, given the, the, the credit story that's taking place there, I think that's still, a, that's still a positive. But yeah, it does, that forward guidance can be quite constraining. As we've discovered here in the UK as well, it's a, it's, it's a curse for, for those who issue them sometimes. And it also comes at a time when the Fed are still um, maintaining their their sort of their outlook. They're going to very proceed. bullish, hawkish um, rhetoric <laughs> from Chairman Powell. Powell strikes a very hawkish tone. He's never had to do anything different yet, I guess. So that the time will come where he's tested and and things get a bit tougher, uh, and he'll have to have to manage manage markets and, and investors then. But you know, it was very stark the, the contrast between listening to Draghi and listening to Powell. In the same week, uh, you know, miles apart. Interesting. Uh, well, we are almost at the end, which uh, I, I know is um, the highlight for you, where we get to play our parlour game of hot cakes and hot potatoes. Um, Charlotte, what are your hot cakes, the things that uh, you would like to buy? Well, I think being long dollar uh, for, for a bit longer may, makes some sense, given the sort of dovish shift we're seeing elsewhere and given that the US is, is still at the moment anyway, and perhaps not, not for uh, the rest of the year, but at the moment the US is, is still growing above everyone and else. And your hot potatoes, hot potatoes, what would you drop? Uh, I'm going to drop Brazilian equities um, because uh, well, Brazilian equity market in particular is a very good play on the domestic situation in Brazil. Uh, you've got elections coming up, which are very uncertain, and they've got a bit a big problem with their um, their fiscal side of things, which is going to become very difficult. In fact, increasingly difficult to fix. Jolly good, Eugene. Your hotcakes. Uh, my hotcakes are actually a, a recipe of. Uh, U.S. Treasury bonds and with a sprinkling of Chinese government bonds, which I think would appeal a lot Sounds to delicious. Uh, yes. uh, certain uh, Mr. Trump. But um, that, yeah, I think, you know, U.S. Treasuries as a defensive asset uh, in, the, in the current environment, but also Chinese government bonds, because if we are seeing, you know, they are uh, yielding three point, you know, over three and a half percent. Uh, and if there is a slowdown in emerging markets, I think they will also be quite defensive in that um, in that environment. Uh, delectable. And um, what uh, is failing? What is falling flat in the oven? Uh, what's your hot potato hot that you, potato. Want to, uh, you want uh, to get rid? It's actually European high yield, and we've been you know long term holders of European high yield. But I think it's an asset that has, or an asset class that has benefited indirectly from uh, quantitative easing program in Europe and if and we don't know what the impact of the tapering will be so you know but the our, good times may well be ending the good times may well be a bit behind us we may have a better opportunity to to buy it back uh, in the future ever the optimist i like that even from a fixed income man um and james how about you your hotcakes so my 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 hotcake is um japanese yen and there's kind of two interrelated reasons for that one is the fact is it is normally a risk-off currency and, and actually we've, we've said recently that we were worried about it being a risk-off currency because of north korea if that's been 
um, slightly diffused it's a natural risk off currency but secondly and, and, and related to it when you think about what's the reserve currency um, that's been the dollar um, and Trump is doing everything he can accidentally actually to stop the dollar being the reserve currency in terms of wanting to um, not have a, a balance of payments deficit etc and, and as he pushes for that that, that ex- exits the dollar at least in investors minds it's not going to be the euro given concerns around the euro it's not going to be sterling so maybe actually the yen has got a very positive sort of medium to long term um, tailwind behind it. Jolly good, and your hot potato? So I'm going to come back to the topic we were on um, and you were pushing me on earlier, which is UK equities, and particularly mid and small caps. And I think, you know, that probably at some point a Brexit deal will be done, but they say the darkest hour is just before dawn. And, and maybe if we're approaching that deal, um, that's the point that investors really start panicking about, about what if there's a no deal. Um, the odds of a general election in the UK this year have, have, have gone up markedly. Um, people are beginning to worry, and I think you could see a, a, a real move down there. What a summer we had have ahead of us. We're out of time. Thank you very much indeed, uh, James, for that. And I hope it's given you listening uh, an insight into the thinking behind this month's asset allocation. If you'd like more detail, it's published in full on our website. And if you'd like to discuss anything we've covered, just ask your Fidelity contact. Thank you very much indeed to my guests, Eugene, Charlotte and James. And thanks to you for listening. We'll be back next month. But for now, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for information purposes only and is intended only for the person or entity to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of Fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website or the Fidelity SoundCloud or iTunes apps.